This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now, each Sunday this fall, we take a passage from Genesis and consider how it can help us understand what's wrong with our world. Today, we're looking at a genealogy. You thought maybe I'd skip this, right? Or at least wouldn't attempt to read it publicly. But the Bible is full of these kinds of passages of repetitive, monotonous, uh, what some of us would consider dull passages. And so when you're private reading, perhaps in the Bible, you may skim it or skip it altogether, certainly not spend a lot of time on reading it very carefully or studying it. And the question is, why are these things in the Bible? Why are there so many passages like that in the Bible? Well, one reason, this is the general reason, is that God values people. 
And I think God delights putting names of people he loves in the book. And any genealogy that you read in the Bible, and there are many, has this inherent challenge to us. And the challenge is, is your name in God's book? Every time you read a genealogy, we have to look at ourselves and say, am I on the list of people that God has included in the book of life? Additionally, every genealogy contains some important truths for us to learn. And I hope to show you this morning from our passage that there are some very significant truths in this very passage as there are in many others. So as you look at the genealogy in Genesis 5, and you consider this, this fairly long stretch of human history, the question is, how do you read it? Do you see this as a positive stretch? Sort of good trajectory, they're recovering from Abel's murder, kind of a fresh start for humanity? Or do you read it as a negative account of human history? A record of humanity's further descent into wickedness, prompting God's judgment in the next chapter. Just a little over two weeks away from the elections, as we hear promises and threats get even greater and louder, I'd like to address the problem of progress. Is the world getting better, or is it getting worse? What kind of change does the world need? Is human history following a particular course? You know, when you graduate from high school or college, the typical address, the typical commencement speech is, go change the world, right? And so we encourage these young graduates to go and change the world and to make a difference. But I think very few of us stop and ask the question, what does that mean? What what does it mean to change the world? To what end? In what direction? What are the emphases? How do we even assess if the world is changing? Is the world good or bad? Those are the questions I want to deal with today. So look with me at Genesis 5. And if you see just kind of how it progresses, there is a progression here, by the way. So it starts with the two verses, which is a recap of God's creation of humanity. Just reminds us that God made men and women in God's image and his likeness. He named them man, which just means Adam, just a generic term for humanity. And every human being bears God's likeness and God's image. So that's the recap of what happened so far. And then you have 30 verses of names and numbers that are following exactly the same pattern. This is the pattern. When so-and-so lived so many years, he fathered such and such. So-and-so lived so many years after he fathered such and such and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of so-and-so were this many years after which he died. This is the exact pattern that you see in every person that's mentioned here. It just, it's very repetitive. It just puts new numbers and new names in it, but it's the same pattern except for the three interruptions. This is how you read a genealogy. You look for things that are different. You look for things that are disruptive to the general flow of this passage. And there are three very significant interruptions, and this is my outline today. The first interruption is in verse 3, and it has to do with additional information about Seth. The second is in verse 24, where we have a brief and rather mysterious description of the life of Enoch. And then the final interruption is found in verse 29, and it has to do with Noah. 
So I'll deal with Seth first, then I'll do Noah second, okay, and then we'll return to Enoch, because I think Enoch is the culmination, kind of the central piece of this passage. And in these three interruptions in the lives of Seth and Noah and Enoch, we actually see three distinct approaches to progress and change in our world. Now, I'll try to make my case for that. We'll see if you'll believe me, if you'll buy this, okay? Let's see what we can learn from this boring passage of Scripture. Okay, let's deal with Seth first in verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So the first addition to the rigid pattern of this genealogy presents Seth specifically as Adam's heir. He is the one who continues Adam's line. It is Seth who bears Adam's likeness and image. It's specifically stated it's important. It breaks the pattern. But here's something interesting. As you remember, Adam had other kids. Adam had Cain. Adam had Abel before Seth. And as we read last week, Cain murdered Abel, and now Cain has been banished and is wandering somewhere in the land of Nod. And yet here, in this genealogy, Cain is completely ignored. There's no mention of him. It's as if Adam is making a fresh start with Seth. We kind of saw a little bit of that in the previous chapter when Eve gave birth to Seth, and it's like, well, God gave me another child. Now things are going to get better. We have another kid. We lost one, and the other one is a criminal. But now this one, this one will bring hope to us. It's as if Cain doesn't exist and Abel was never murdered that you read this genealogy. It feels like a rather positive spin on the past. Now, another notable omission, again, if you read the Bible, you see it in context, you know what happened already. And so you notice that another notable omission is any reference to the fall of Adam himself. Now, Adam, there's, there's a mention of creation that humanity was made in God's image. That's here. And then there's a skip, right? There's a, there's a gap here where it just goes right into Adam fathered Seth in his own image. But what is the image of Adam? Well, the image of Adam includes not just the image of God, but it also includes a, a distorted humanity based on the fall that happened in the garden. So whatever Adam is passing on to Seth doesn't just include the image of God, and the beauty of God's glory being implanted in humanity, but it also includes original sin. Adam is passing on something evil to his children as well. But that's omitted. It's not mentioned. It's not mentioned that Adam sinned at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now the whole humanity, including Seth, including everybody who comes after him in this list, they're all affected by sin. Not only Abel experienced death in the previous chapter, not only Abel was murdered, but the whole humanity is now destined to die. And as you read this genealogy, even if you, as you heard me read it, you, you hear that refrain, right? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. No matter how many years any particular person lived, and they lived a long time, apparently at that time, and yet they all died. Well, except for one, but we'll get to him later. No genealogy can ignore the universal dominion of death. That's how genealogies are made. It's births and lives 
and deaths. And so this first interruption of the pattern illustrates humanity's attempt to rewrite the past, to edit it. Seth is presented as a preferred point of reference for Adam's line. Cain, the criminal, and Abel, the victim, are eliminated from the family history in an effort to tell a better story about the past and so to ensure a better, brighter future. But all, not, all is not well. Even here, you can't get away from sin and death. You just can't ignore it. Remember that this rather optimistic genealogy is followed by the account of the increasing wickedness and judgment in the flood in the very next chapter. Listen to one commentator. He says, The warning of this chapter is clear. We cannot forgive and forget. Even if Cain is erased from history, the children of Adam fall under the sway of sin. Now look at this description of Seth, as this, this very positive look back, look at the past, as an example of the conservative approach to the course of human history. Conservatives typically look to the past. The essence of the conservative approach is the determination to preserve, right, to conserve certain realities or values that are usually rooted in an earlier, happier time. In a sense, a conservative wants the future to resemble the past. However, here's one very important question. Which past? How far back do you go? Adam here goes back to Seth. Fresh start, right? Things are going to be good now. We're going to ignore some of the stuff that happened in the, in the earlier past, and we're going to start right here, and this is going to be the point where things are going to be okay. Now, another question that we must ask of every conservative is, was the past as great as you say it was? In our genealogy, we see the idealized past. Cain's line is developed in parallel to Seth's, and yet this genealogy presents the past without Abel's murder, Cain's banishment, and Lamech's violence of the previous chapter. Listen to what G.K. Chesterton from 100 years ago says. I think this is very insightful. He says, The whole modern world has divided itself into conservatives and progressives. The business of progressives is to go on making mistakes. The business of the conservatives is to prevent the mistakes being corrected. Let me read this again to you. This is a great quote. The whole modern world was, has divided itself into conservatives and progressives. The business of the progressives is to go on making mistakes. The business of the conservatives is to prevent the mistakes being corrected. The questions raised by the Seth part of this genealogy remain relevant for today's political and social conservatives. How far back do you go when you present a certain period in the past as the template for the future? Do you go back to the 1980s? Would my children consider it to be the olden days as the 80s? 
in their minds, this is going way, way back. Do you go back to the 1950s? Some of you do, right? How far back do you go? Because this is a really crucial question. Biblically, however far back you go is simply not far back enough. Unless, as a conservative, if you're a self-confessed, self-professed conservative, okay? Let me challenge you here. Unless you're willing to go back all the way to the Garden of Eden, to the pre-fall human flourishing, you are not conservative enough in the biblical sense of human history. And if you don't go that far back, however far back you go, you will have to deal with some major flaws in your platform. Because biblically, there has never been a time after the Garden of Eden where humanity actually did well. Every time, now some better, some worse, but every period of time is going to present certain issues, certain mistakes that needed to be corrected and weren't. Of course, biblically, we can't idealize any part of our past east of Eden. Every part, every time, every era in history has been affected by sin and death, and no political rhetoric or economic policy can bring us back to the tree of life. This is what the Bible says as an assessment of the conservative approach to human history. Now, if you're not a conservative and you're saying this is great, we need to critique conservatism, and this is wonderful that the Bible exposes, let me talk about progressives, okay? So we turn to Noah. That's the, the next interruption, or the third interruption, actually. So verses 28 and 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now what's going on here? Lamech is hoping that his son Noah will make his life easier. He's expecting progress in the next generation. Notice that his hope is, is rather limited. He just wants work to get easier and less painful. That's kind of as far as high as he shoots here. Now you may remember that one of the consequences of humanity's fall into sin, and this is from chapter 3 of Genesis, was the curse of the ground. God cursed the ground, and the work that used to be joyful and fulfilling and, and easy, right, pain-free, now became hard. And all of us who work, we know that. It doesn't quite work the way you want it to be. It's not quite as fulfilling, and there are many difficult, frustrating parts to our jobs. Well, this is a result of the fall. Things disintegrated. Things got thrown off. And so we live in a world where work is difficult. And especially for somebody like Lamech who had to live from the ground. He had to, he had to toil uh, and, and produce things to eat from the ground. And so he's saying, when Noah is born, and Noah's name means comfort or rest, he says, he will bring me comfort and rest. He will figure out how to do this better. In his generation, we will do better with work. We'll be able to produce more crops. We'll be able to be more secure in our land. This is what he's hoping for. Noah will improve the situation. Now, this passage prompted some Jewish, medieval Jewish uh, commentators say that 
Noah must have invented the plow or maybe other agricultural tools because life, there was a hope of life getting, busy, getting easier. So Lamech is looking at Noah and says, he's going to make my life easier. This next generation is going to make progress. They're going to produce good change. And so I took this as an example of the progressive approach to human history. Lamech looks to the future. Seth belongs to the past, the rewritten, edited past, but Noah belongs to the future. The next generation is going to do better. Improvements must be made. Change is necessary. Now, interestingly enough, the progressive approach shares the same difficulty with the conservative approach. It ignores the biggest problem, namely sin and death. Just like in Adam's line in the very beginning, there's a rewriting and the exclusion of Cain, the exclusion of Abel's murder, the exclusion of the fall and death entry in human history. Here, too, we have optimism that just rests on the next generation. There's no mention of death. There's no mention of sin. In fact, some read this and say, you know, I wonder if Lamech is thinking about the prophecy in Genesis 3.15 that the offspring of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. Well, if he's thinking about that prophecy and, and hoping that Noah will be that deliverer, he's only thinking in very limited terms. He's thinking Noah, at best, will help us deal with the curse of the ground, but not the curse of sin on humanity. He's not bringing that up. Lamech is not hoping that Noah might be the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and restore humanity's eternal, eternal life with God. As the prophecy said, he seems to only aspire to better work life and better food. Now, isn't it interesting that as humanity solves problems and makes progress, we're also creating more problems? Have you noticed that? The progressive platform, the typical progressive approach to human history, whatever its political reiteration may be, looks at life as constantly getting better. So we see a problem, we solve a problem, we create a solution, we create a cure, and then we see that cure, that solution, affecting and creating many other problems. So for example, by finding a cure for one disease, we leave ourselves vulnerable to many others. By using chemicals to increase our crops, we spread cancer. By inventing technology to improve communication, we fuel an epidemic of loneliness. Now, I mentioned an interview with the actor Jamila Jamil a few weeks ago. I just found that interview very insightful, so I'll, I'll refer to it again. In the beginning of the interview, she was lamenting how when she was growing up, she wasn't educated well enough in terms of sexuality specifically. And she said, well, I hope, I really wish that I, I was told about consent, that I was told about these different things that were kind of taboos in the school that she was in. And then, in the very same interview, she laments how kids who are growing up today are exposed to so much sexuality and so much information that they don't know what to do with it. It's both, isn't it? We want to be more educated. We want more information, and then we don't know what to do with it. So is the world getting better? Are we making progress or not? Research indicates that child mortality and extreme poverty are in fact going down significantly. Literacy and vaccination 
are going up significantly. You can look at the charts, it's dramatic. Now, in that sense, we have to agree that the world is demonstrably better than it was. However, only a very small percentage of people surveyed believe that the world is getting better. Do you know? I wonder why that is. Because you can show the data. You can show, you can say, look, more kids are surviving now. Less people are poor. More people are healthy now. There's more food in the world. You can show that's it's indisputable. And yet, very, very few people actually believe that the world is getting better. Nobody feels like the world is getting better. Why is that? Only 6% in America believe that the world is getting better. 6%. That's incredible. The wealthiest, most educated country in the world, and only 6% of Americans believe that the world is actually getting better. So are we making progress? In the last decade, negative feelings like worry and anger and sadness have been rising around the world up by 27% in the last decade. Are we making progress? Well, it depends on how you measure it, doesn't it? We're better off in some ways, mostly materially, in terms of education, medicine, economy, and yet we are less happy. Now listen to Tim Keller. He summarizes this. He says, if we step back to ask What we have learned about happiness over the centuries, it is striking to see our lack of progress. Think of how we have surpassed our ancestors in our ability to travel and communicate, in our accomplishments in medicine and science. Think of how much less brutal and unjust to minorities many societies are today compared with even 100 years ago. In so many ways, human life has been transformed, and yet, though we are unimaginably wealthier, and more comfortable than our ancestors, no one is arguing that we are significantly happy. No one is arguing that we are significantly happier than they were. We are struggling and seeking happiness in essentially the same ways our forebears did and doing a worse job of it, if we use the rise of depression and suicide as an indicator. He's saying that there's indisputable evidence that lots of areas in our lives are getting better, and yet we are not happier than we used to be. We're less happy now. The same happiness report I quoted a minute ago found that people in America are suffering from an epidemic of addictions. About 50% are are said to have some sort of addiction in life. Addiction to technology in particular is one of the main factors that have been identified by researchers in the worrying mental health trends among the American adolescents. Progress in one area, technology, seems to bring destruction in another, social relationships, kids growing up in a healthy way. Which goals, which metrics should we prioritize? How do we know which criteria, how do we know which criteria we should be, u- we should be using in measuring our progress? G.K. Chesterton, whom I quoted a few minutes ago, and 100 years ago, he's saying this, okay? Pointing out that the problem with progressivism is its lack of a fixed vision for the future. We don't know where we're going. We don't know how to measure our progress. I think it's a pretty good assessment of the progressive movement of our time as well. This is what Chesterton said. He said, progress should mean that we are always changing the world to suit the vision. 
Progress does mean, just now, that we are always changing the vision. We're not altering the real to suit the ideal. We're altering the ideal. It is easier. That's what he says. In other words, if you believe in progress, but you don't have a specific vision of what we should become as humanity, it's really easy to just adjust that vision to what's going on now. And instead of take the real and adapt it to the ideal, that vision, the fixed vision of humanity, we just adapt the ideal to the real. It's much easier to do. So for today's progressives, if you thought I left you out, I didn't. For today's progressives, Lamech's hope in Noah provides a formidable challenge. Are you addressing some problems and not others? Are you willing to look at the fundamental problems and not just address the symptoms? Do you have a fixed vision of humanity's future? Now, biblically, unless the removal of sin's curse and the establishment of permanent, eternal human flourishing in the New Jerusalem is part of your vision, you are simply not progressive enough. So when you think about the conservative approach and the progressive approach, and many of us are thinking about it right now, right? Because we're in the midst of this election, we're in the midst of all this cultural conversation, which approach is better? Should we be conservative? Should we be progressive or liberal? This is the conversation that the world is having right now. But as a Christian, as you consider and contemplate which approach, conservative or progressive, is more Christian, the answer is neither. The answer is neither. Both approaches have the same problem. They underestimate the problem, and they overestimate their respective solutions. While we make much of the differences between the conservative and the progressive approaches, they are both historically and culturally conditioned. In fact, most conservative ideas were once progressive. And almost every progressive idea is destined to become part of some conservative platform in the next generation. So do you see how the conversation is not so much, should we look to the past or should we look to the future? But what are we looking to? What's the fixed vision? Is there something that enters outside of history? Is there something that is rooted beyond this conversation? then can give us hope. Otherwise, it's just relative. It's just ideas we like today, and we choose to call some of them progressive, and others we choose to call them conservative. Or, let me put it more clearly, democratic or republican. Now, where I grew up, when the Soviet Union fell apart, in those, those first few years of political turmoil and different parties coming into, into existence, what was considered to be conservative at that time was Marxism. Because they looked to the past. They wanted to hold on to the Soviet Union. So they were saying, we need to go back to that. That was conservative. What was considered progressive was free market economics and democracy. Do you see how, how these ideas is just what we call certain things? 
But if we're conditioned by our history, if we're conditioned by our culture, we can never have actually a good conversation unless we get out of it, unless we have something eternal. We need to bring something else into the conversation. Otherwise, it's just preferences. It's what I think will work best, or what I think used to work best, or what I hope will work best for us. My contention this morning is that whether conservative or progressive, apart from God, we don't know where we're going, and we certainly don't know how to get there. And here we come to the last interruption of the genealogy in our text. Verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked, with, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch appears not only as an interruption of this genealogy, but as somewhat of a contradiction. He's the only person in this long line of people who does not die. One commentator said, Enoch is presented as the standing pledge of death's defeat. Standing pledge of death's defeat. If Adam finds hope in Seth's line and Lamech in Noah's generation, Enoch brings us hope beyond human history. This is no mere earthly hope that we read in Enoch's life. Enoch acknowledges both Eden and the heavenly Jerusalem. On the one hand, Enoch walked with God. This language denotes intimacy with God. When you read in the Bible that somebody walked with God, that means that they lived in a close relationship with God. Enoch lived in a relationship with God that is reminiscent of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You might notice the connection. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned, it says that God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. So right away when you're reading that Enoch walked with God, it takes you back to the garden. It reminds you that there was a time when people walked with God, when people talked with God, when there was an intimacy and a close connection with their creator. So in some ways, Enoch is looking back to that. He lives east of Eden, and yet he's experiencing Eden-like intimacy with God. But on the other hand, we read that Enoch was not for God took him. He didn't die like others, but he was, in some way, he was taken up by God into his presence to wait for the full restoration of creation in God's presence as it develops. Now listen to how Hebrews, Hebrews 11.5 puts it. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. He lived by faith in God and in the redemption and renewal of the world. There's a future kind of orientation to his life. He walked with God as people did in the Garden of Eden, but he also was taken out of this world and placed in another world in God's presence, avoiding death altogether. Was Enoch conservative or progressive? Neither. He looked back to Eden, and he looked forward to the new Jerusalem. His approach to human history is distinctly Christian. And by distinctly Christian, please hear me, I do not mean moderate. I'm not just calling you to have some kind of a mix or kind of end up somewhere in the center. 
That's not what I'm calling you to do and to think. What I'm saying is there's a third approach that's neither conservative nor progressive and is distinctly Christian. And just to be very clear, this is how we should process politics, social change, political platforms, candidates, all of that should be put through the prism of a distinctly Christian understanding of human history. Everything else is just, it's just not enough. It's not accurate enough. We are conservative as Christians in some ways because we remember Eden. You see, we know what human flourishing looks like because we remember and there's a collective memory of human life in Eden in the presence of God. And this is why we promote certain causes. We promote certain legislation, certain values. East of Eden, now, here, because we remember what it was like in Eden. However, we are progressive as well, in some ways, because we believe in the renewed creation that is yet to come. We look forward to God's new world when heaven comes to earth. That's very progressive. We look forward, like Enoch, to what God is yet to do. We walk with God in this world, and yet we anticipate that we will be placed in another world for all eternity. Like Enoch, we live by faith here, and yet we anticipate our faith becoming sight at the consummation of all things under Christ's rule. Do you see how it's both conservative and progressive, and it's neither? This is a distinctly different approach. This is a Christian view of history. There's no political platform that fits in it neatly. We are not like people in this world. We have a very different worldview. And we have to now apply it to how we live. Christian approach incorporates different elements of the conservative and the progressive platforms. And yet it is neither conservative or progressive. For example, Christians rejoice that more people are literate and less people are poor. And yet, as Christians, we also know that if we worship medicine, if we worship education or technology or money, it will enslave us and will make us unhappy. We know that true happiness does not depend on the material blessings. We can explain why people are getting wealthier and less happy. We can explain. Nobody else can explain that, but we can. Because our worldview, our view of human history incorporates these ideas and these kind of concepts. We know that true happiness does not depend on the material blessings. Even if we cure all the diseases and stop all wars, happiness will elude humanity. We know that we cannot be happy unless we can walk with God now and in eternity. So as Christians that are neither conservative nor progressive, we support politicians that promote Eden-like flourishing of humanity. Fixed vision. But at the same time, we don't believe that any politician can bring in the kingdom of God. That's coming. But God will do that in a cataclysmic event at the end of human history. Only Christianity gives us the fixed ideal for the future of humanity. And that vision is both rooted in the past and looks toward the future. Eden and the New Jerusalem both inform our cultural engagement today. 
But the Bible gives us even more than the right vision of humanity and human history. It not only tells us where we should be going, but it also tells us how we can get there. Listen to Augustine, the African bishop, fourth, fourth century North African bishop. He says, there is hope, for there is hope to attain a journey's end when there is a path which stretches between the traveler and his goal. But if there is no path, or if a man does not know which way to go, there is little use in knowing the destination. As it is, there is one road and one only, well secured against all possibility of going astray, and this road is provided by one who is himself both God and man. As God, he is the goal. As man, he is the way. Augustine says that it's not enough just to have a vision, a fixed vision of human flourishing and, and the destiny of humanity. It's not enough. We need to know how to get there. We need a guide. We need a path. We need somebody to take us there. And he says there's only one road and one only, and there's only one guide and one only, and that guide is Jesus, the God-man, who bridges that. In order to develop and apply the right view of humanity's progress, like Enoch, we are to walk with Christ, the God-man. It's by faith in Christ that we can live rightly east of Eden and by the same faith meet him when our days here are over. He is our guide to the future of renewed humanity. Now, when you read about Enoch, and you read that he walked with God, did you ask this very important question? How can it be that Enoch, who is now east of Eden, been excluded from the garden, can walk with God? Remember, in chapter 3, God stayed in the garden, and God put cherubim to protect people from entering his presence again. So what is going on here? How can Enoch, east of Eden, after all that has happened... After all that humanity has done, how can he be walking with the Lord? There's only one explanation here. The Lord went to him. Because he couldn't go to the Lord. The cherubim wouldn't let him. But the Lord came to him. This is what we Christians call grace. Because God wasn't waiting for the humanity to figure out the fixed vision. God was not waiting for us to figure out whether we should be progressive or conservative. God came to us. And when we read in the Gospels that Jesus was born, that God became human, and when you open the first book of the New Testament, this is so important, we're looking at the first book of the Old Testament, and then we compare it with the first book of the New Testament, and the first chapter of Matthew starts with what? A genealogy. Why? Because this God-man has implanted himself into a human family. And he put himself in the long list of people. Jesus, God of God, light of light, the very God of very God, became very, very human. And when he did that, he recorded his name in the human genealogy so that your name and my name can be recorded in his book of life. When Jesus came, 
He exposed our fundamental problems. He wasn't dealing primarily with the secondary issues of human society. He exposed the fundamental problem, which is sin and death. Jesus died because that was the only way to break the power of death. He died so we don't live anymore in that cycle, and he died, and he died, and he died. So he died, Jesus died, to break that. Jesus had to die. God had to die. This is how big our problem is, that God had to die. Our sins had to be dealt with through the death of God himself. But what is the solution? If we are disappointed that the progressive and the conservative views underestimate our problem and overestimate the solutions, what is the solution that we find in the gospel? What is the biblical solution for humanity? Jesus rose again, and he now offers life to us. And this life is a life of walking with him, living with him here by faith, and living with him forever in his eternal kingdom when he returns. Do you have this kind of life? Or are you still caught up in looking to the past, past trying to bring it back, or looking into some kind of nebulous future and trying to achieve that? Do you have this kind of life that transcends death, where Jesus is your guide, the resurrected Jesus who leads you into eternity, who leads you into his kingdom? Are you living waiting for his return? Do you have this kind of faith in Jesus that transforms your view of human history and your view of your own life? Is your name written in the book of God?